Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Uh, have you guys noticed there's like three different words for this room? There's gymnasium, there's sanctuary or auditorium. So I think a couple of our guys in the tech team come up with gym sanctatorium is what we've now, we're going to call this the gym sanctatorium. So you hits everything. Uh, one of the things that we've been working through, and today was a little bit helpful having a noon game, but we have been filling up. And one of the reasons we go to the round two, we, we like the, the connection, but we actually could put more people um, in too in the round. Uh, we are praying for this other half to get finished out, so if you want to pray with us on that, you definitely can. Um, but I want to ask a question. So I was going to do a poll, but I'm just going to do like a straw poll of like just having you, not that you're, I always wondered why straw poll, it sounds so weird, but our hand raising, how's that? How many of you would consider the highly, deeply spiritual move of going to 815 How's that for a setup? Um, <laughs> to be more godly. No. Um, God loves those people who rise early in the morning. No. Um, if we served breakfast before the 8.15, would you consider, um, I'm just, just wondering, raise your hand. If you, would you consider going, could we keep your hands up? I need to kind of just get a rough idea. Bobby is very great. Bobby, you don't count. Sorry. Uh, okay, rough, okay. That gives us an idea. We're, uh, we're reaching some capacities, right? You got two hands in the back, awesome. So two bowls of cereal for you. Uh, we're trying to understand a little bit of the capacity issue and flow issue and all that, so um, great. I don't think we, do we dismiss kids? Yeah, we didn't. And I apologize because Trisha forgot that. So when you see her, um, anyway, all right, kids, let's clap for you. Let's send you out. Well, while they're going out, if you do not have a Bible, would you uh, raise your hand, and then can we get some um, Bible monitor passer-outers? There's a rack over there. There's a, another one over here. I don't know if there's one on this side of the room. Uh, raise your hand. You're going to need a Bible this morning. We actually are going to talk about our Bible, so just keep your hand up, and uh, someone will get you a Bible soon, soon. Uh, somebody's going over there. Yeah, grab tons of those things and pass them out. You're going to have to keep them up for a moment. I promise they won't give anything else to you. All right. Uh, keep your hands up. We need some over here on this section. Anybody else want to help out with Bibles? There, Damien's got it. I think we need some people over here. Like, awesome. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning and start a series, as you guys are getting your Bibles, we're going to start a series called Elephants in Your Faith. Anybody, I can't ask you a question to raise your hand, never mind. Um, maybe you've heard of the phrase, there's an elephant in the room. Have you heard that before? Yeah. This is a phrase, is an idiom that, that came uh, out of Europe, and it was to signify of an obvious truth, a truth 
um, existing maybe in a social circle, a setting, a family unit, a business, something that everybody knows is there but nobody wants to talk about. It's called an elephant in the room. And so it's a, it's a reality and it could be that you know, there's a family secret that everybody knows and it's called a family secret but you know, everybody knows about it. I've heard like um, a family member that smokes and, and everybody is pretending like they don't know that they've smoked for years but that they do. That would be an elephant in the room and nobody wants to talk about it. What I'm finding and discovering in the, the conversations that I have in today's culture, both in and outside of the church, is that there are elephants in our faith. There seems to be issues that when brought up, or, or there's, a, there's a lot of energy spent on not bringing up certain issues. Issues that have to deal with, for instance, when we talk about politics, and we talk about government in our faith, and we talk about sexuality in our faith, and we talk about um, what is sin and what isn't sin, we start to talk about many issues and they start to surface there's a reality, that there's an elephant and there's these big elephants that we've got to begin to talk about more in the church today and as Christ followers. Now we're going to launch into a series and today is um, one of those messages that's going to be highly informative. Um, not saying that it won't be inspirational for you, um, it is for me, uh, is, it could be for some of you, but it's going to be informative on an elephant that we've got to get at um, in our culture, and it has to do with this book that you're holding now called the Bible. And so I, I want to dialogue a little bit about that. Let me ask you this question. I'm going to ask you a few questions. What's the highest authority in your life? And, and I'm not asking you to just quickly say, well, obvious answer, I'm sitting in church, Troy's talking about the Bible, that's the right answer, right? No, I want you to really practically think of when you're in conversation, what do you source as true or truth? Here's um, some studies done. Uh, how many doctors or nurses do we have in the room? Yeah, you are right now, um, just I'm saying right now because the government's not helping you right now, but you are the most trusted vocation. People go to you for authority. Um, believe it or not, you are a very trusted vocation. What I say by the government, they say that's losing steam because of some of the health and government kind of mixing together. Some people are losing faith in that. That would be one area. Uh, some would say, or actually most have said, that the highest authority uh, would be family or friends. In other words, you're in a conversation and someone says, oh, I don't believe that. And you could ask them why. In most cases, they're going to say, well, a friend or family member told me. What you find is that when we talk about what the highest authority of our lives are in conversation and dialogue, very few people source today scripture as the highest level of authority. It becomes where it's opinion. You know, it's interesting on the internet today because you could find nearly everything, but uh, how many of you uh, have used Wikipedia? Raise your hand. Do you know, right, that it's a non it's, it's not an accepted resource. Is the GB students here, right? You can't write papers with Wikipedia. It's a no-no. You get a bad grade. Why? It's not an authority. What's interesting today is you start to think about what's the highest authority in your life. It's a great question is what do you deem as true? What do you, you sense as what's guiding your decision-making process 
in the mix of trying to be parents or students uh, or people at work or dealing with issues like anger or dealing with issues of forgiveness or laziness, how, how do you find any sense of guidance? Let me ask you this question. So what is the Bible to you? I mean, what does the Bible mean to you? Every week we gather in here and at Green Bay Community Church, since 46 years, it is in our doctrine and our bylaws and our statement of faith that we see this as the highest authority for us as a church body. In other words, we seek this as God's revelation to us that we can find in nearly everything we need for any decision, for any direction that we can have questions for in our lives. But what is the Bible to you? Uh, is it a good story? A lot of people today see this book as just a really good storybook. In other words, this, I mean, this is far-fetched. There's a lot of crazy stuff in here, but it's a good book. A lot like Aesop's fables or Greek mythology. It's like good lessons for people to learn. A lot of people today believe in our world that this is just a good story. You might this morning, though, think that this is God's story. But maybe you look at this as God's story mostly. Like it's God's story, but come on, Troy. Seas parted, you know, people raised from the dead. You know, what is it, Ezekiel, dry bones coming out of the, out of the ground. I mean, there's crazy stories in here. And so I'll hear people say this. I believe some of it. But some of it, I just don't think was meant for us to, it's not applicable to today. Thomas Jefferson felt this way, and you can go purchase or look up on Wikipedia uh, or any other sources, find Jefferson's Bible. What did he do? He took scissors and tape and cut out sections of the Bible that he agreed with, that he agreed with and said, I see this as truth, and took and put together, it's called the Jefferson Bible, and it's good morality or good ideas. So you either see this as just a good story or God's story that has some good stuff in it that might be true and some of it might not be. Or really a third posture this morning that I'm finding is declining more and more in our culture today and that is that it's God's word. That he, he literally, as we're going to find, breathed this inspiration into writers that would eventually compile this whole section of 66 books or letters that would be compiling the same theme and they would be as termed, we're going to find out in 2 Timothy, the breath of God breathed out and instructions for us. What is the highest authority in your life? Is it what your opinion is? Is it what it's convenient to you? Is it family or friends? What is the Bible to you this morning? Is it a good story? Is it God's story? Or is it God's word? And so let me ask you this question. What's at stake if the Bible is not inspired? There's this term that goes out there in understanding your Bible that it's the inspired, um, it's the inspired word of God. Have you heard this before? It's the inspired book. What that means is it's, it's the God-breathed revelation of God that he actually put his spirit into men that actually wrote those words. What's at stake if it's not? I mean, how do we have a conversation 
about how to live in an evil world if it's not all true, if it's not all inspired, if it's partially inspired? How do we have a conversation about sexual identity in today's culture, right? Because the buzzword today is tolerance, right? We're supposed to just be very tolerant of all faiths. Now, never in Scripture does it tell us to hate other people. In fact, quite opposite. It says love everyone. But the word tolerant now is saying you need to accept my truth as, as truthful as your truth. Tolerance has become this nice buzzword, and it's implying a large elephant in the room that then this is not fully inspired, is it? Then it becomes relative. If it's not inspired, it's really what's at stake is we hit relativism. And there's moral relativism. There's a lot of different applications of this, and this is not new. This goes all the way back to Greek philosophers that felt this all throughout history. So this is not new, and you see Paul addressing this all throughout your New Testament. But it really is the philosophical position that all points of view are equally valid and that all truth is relative to the individual. In other words, hey, bro, whatever you think is true is true for you, and that's good, right? The problem, you could see, becomes enormous. It's not just an elephant. It's literally a room packed full of elephants because how do you, how do you move and navigate through this life with no sense of authority, when everybody just suggests that their way or their idea is just as truthful. And so it's not confusing or it's not a mystery to me that when I find people in my office and I'll ask them, and as I've done before, I'll say, take scissors and cut out whatever you don't want me to talk about in this book that you don't think applies to you. And they look at me like I'm crazy. They say, well, no, I, I believe it all. I go, really, if you do, it's going to ask you to live to another standard, to an authority, to submit to an authority, because this is God's inspired word. So when I look at a couple that wants to get married, and they're living together, and they're having sex together, and I don't judge them for that, and saying, if you want to follow this book, it tells you that that's clearly outside of God's bounds. And there's ramifications for that. And if any of you have gone through that, this is not shame or guilt. God redeems and, and, and moves us beyond our sin and brokenness. But there's clear instructions about being angry, about how to deal with money, how to parent, how to use the words we have, how to bring light, how to do good works, how to care for the poor. I mean, we go on and on and on. And there is instructions on how to live life. You see, the ramification or the implication if the book is not fully inspired. It's like me handing you a map, a map of the United States, giving you directions and roadmaps to go everywhere, but you look at me and say, I don't fully trust your map. I'm going to create my own map. And it's ridiculous because relativism gets very arrogant. In fact, what happens is it becomes their own authority. I love this, and this had, I did not realize this would really link well with our Leo Frio bridge here issue, but it says, R.C. Sproul says, I do not want to drive across the bridge designed by an engineer who believes the numbers in structural stress models are relative truths. Because isn't it true that this idea that truth is relative is ridiculous? 
just from a practical standpoint, from a, a cognitive ta- standpoint, to think that we could negotiate and you believe in gravity but I don't is foolish. You know, my reality, uh, no pun intended, hits me really hard when I jump off the building because I don't believe in gravity. The reality, there are, are truths that are absolute. And so I know this is informative this morning, but you see, if we don't trust the Scriptures as the inspired full book of God, and you may be even saying, I mostly do, there's a problem there, there's an elephant. Because then you decide, you become the authority on what's true and what's not. This is a big problem. And before we launch into this series, I knew I had to do this week because we're going to start diving into different parts of the Bible that says, here's how we're supposed to operate here. Now, it's not going to be shame and guilt and shame on us. It's more of, do we want guidance? Do we want an authority to help us know how to take steps and move forward? If we do, we look to the authority and we, we source from Scripture. If we decide as a people that there is no authority or we get to choose and pick and choose like Thomas Jefferson and make our own sense of truth, then we're in trouble. And it should be no surprise that our culture today, our country is in a downward spiral, isn't it? Because some of the foundation, foundational, the, the, the foundational authority of which our country was founded is what? Is being pushed aside. That can't all be relevant for today. That can't all be true today. So we find ourselves in in a situation where there's elephants, and you find yourself in conversations as Christians, right? Or maybe even in a moral dilemma yourself of, you don't want to talk about this issue because you believe something, but it's contrary to what this book says, or someone else believes in something that's contrary to what this book says. And so we have to go back to what the real issue is. The scriptures are the inspired word of God. You know, 54% of church attenders read their Bible one time per week or less outside of the church. Now, the reason this is important for you to understand, if this is, and we are suggesting it is, and I'm saying to represent our board of elders and 46 years of elders, that Green Bay Community Church sees this as the authority of what we teach on Sundays, of how we operate a staff, of how we set values, of how we spend money. All of it comes out of that book. Because of that, if you reduce your Bible, your your chance to dive into this map, into the inspired book of God to 40 minutes of a teacher on a Sunday, you're going to be very limited. The transformational power, the possibility that could happen in your life is going to be very limited. Now again, this morning, I want to be cautious because I'm not trying to guilt you. What I'm trying to help you see is can you see how a culture that's moving away from reading this book might be confused? Another little fact here is that 86% 86 of the people that do read the Bible outside of church read it alone. Do you know why that's not very healthy? Because this book was written and inspired by God to write with men, and they wrote it, and they, it was letters that came to communities like this. And when the communities came together, they would discuss that, and they would work through that, and they would begin to talk about applying that, and they would look at each other in the eye and say, this is, 
This is words from God. How will we fulfill it? How will we do this? Friends, that's why we do groups around here. Not because there's this like secret society of church you know, builders somewhere, or there's this other Bible that tells you that. It's because we are to, to live out our faith in public, and especially in our church community. If some of you are finding a struggle to read your Bible and understand it, friends, get with others. Every week, I sit in two specific groups to help study for messages. One on Thursday morning with some volunteers and some staff members, and we talk about what's going to be taught. And I'm learning from them as they're learning from me, and we're studying together on Tuesdays. I'll talk to a whole other group on our staff about messages, just that, because for me to assume left alone that I can just come out glowing with like the tablets of the word every Sunday and hit the stage is ridiculous. It's been written for us to talk about, to discuss, to apply together. That's why groups, that's why Origins is a great seven-week launch for any of you to get into your Bible. A couple other stats, 88% of Americans own a Bible. They say multiple Bibles, yet 61% wish they would read it more. Now again, we're thinking here, if, if the Bible is the inspired work, work of God, it's, it's the words of God that he breathed out through man, and he allowed us this revelation of this great story of redemption, and it's a full story, not just to be read in parts, but from Genesis to Revelation, and we wish we would read it more. It says something. It should be the book. You remember in times, and I don't know how you grew up in your home, but you always have a, a, a family Bible, or we would call it the, the ornamental Bible, right? The nice, pretty Bible. That, don't open that. Just dust her off, you know? <laughs> got to make sure people know we got a Bible. You know, then you open it and like, I can't even read this Bible. It's in Latin or something else, Right? We have a lot of Bibles that are sitting in our homes, and it's got to move beyond wishing. Look at this. Hours per month, 6.9 hours per month. This is an average of every American. Now, you may be on the low end or zero end, like you're not in Facebook. You don't factor in. Or you're a higher end than that. I know people that do this probably in one week, at least. Look at this, 5.7 on your phone, cell phone, or email. 5.7 hours. You have seven hours and six hours. You're at the 13 hours. And so if you feel like, you know, shame on these techie people, let's just pull TV into it, okay? Let's just pull you right into the mess and the guilt and the shame, all of us. Uh, average American, 60 hours per month watching television. That's DVR, rented DVDs. So you're trying to, like, quantify it and saying, wait, does that count? It all counts, all right? The reality is you look at how much time we spend ingesting a message from the world. Now, friends, John 17, Jesus says, do not be afraid of the world. Uh, do not isolate yourself from the world. He said, live in it. But I want you to be glorifying my name as how you live in it. That means we need a map. We need an instruction manual of how to live rightly, how to live glorifying God in the midst of a very dark place. That will not come from watching television. 
That will not come by reading books other than the Bible itself. Now, there are great books that people write about the Bible, and so we've just done some things on prayer, and I think those are great to resource. But friends, the call this morning, the big elephant this morning is we, if it's inspired by God, if it's the truth that God has left for us to live in this life and in this world, then we've got to be in it. We've got to be in it more than one time per week. And, and just by me talking about a couple passages every week is not going to cut it for you. We have a lot of different interpretations of Scripture, and so let me just give you a couple thoughts. Uh, you know, the books, there's 66 books, 40 different authors, written over 1,500 years, over three different co- continents, over three languages. The amazing uh, unity of the Scripture and the story of Scripture is powerful. And I'm not going to get into the 14,000 different manuscripts that validate the authenticity of Scripture. But can I tell you that Scripture, as we have it today in our language, is not without some errors grammatically and language translation issues. Now for some, you're like, wait, I'm not saying it's not truth. I'm saying that any time, how many of you speak a different language in this room other than English, right? You know that if you speak a different language, all English words don't translate to your language, and that language don't always have an English word, correct? Because of that, translations can struggle. You find sometimes there's grammatical challenges. I want to give you why we have so many different what we call versions or translations of Scripture. We tend to always use an NIV Bible, um, a New International Version. But I'll I'll show you kind of what it is. There's two continuums, or there's one continuum. On the left, you have what's called literal. It's a literal interpretation. On the right, the farther right you go, it becomes less literal. That basically means literal means word for word. If there is this Greek, Aramaic, or Hebrew word, they translate it out. It could be one Hebrew word. There's no English word for And if they have to write four, they write it. Now, that's called word for word. The farther to the right you move, you have then what a translation start to do is what's called thought for thought. That means we're going to take not the word, but we're going to take these three sentences and get the idea and retranslate it the best we know how for that. It moves even farther over if you look and it says paraphrase. And this is where these two words, formal equivalence or dynamic equivalence, is how translators operate. Now, we have a translator that we support through our Go area and our missions, and Linda is a translator with Wycliffe, and she's translating in some language that uh, is, there's hundreds of languages in the area that she's in, but it's a challenge. Talking to her about how they translate, it's, it takes a long time for this to come about. And so what you have is different, ver- different versions of Scripture. So you have a King James. How many of you still have a King James Bible? Yeah, and there's like hardcore King James people. You know, you stick with the thou's and the thou'ists and willist. And, and the problem is we've had an English language for about 400 years, and it's changed. And so the struggle is, when you read a King James Bible or even a New American Standard, it's clunky, right? It's like, wait, I have to read that because they just like, it's the way they talk. When you move over thought for thought, we have like an NIV. We 
generally use an NIV. When I'm in my study for word study, I'll tend to use more of a New American Standard Bible because I want to get word for word in word study. But you see how that goes, ESV or the New Living Standard, but then even go far right. Now you have what's called the Living Bible or the Message. And those, anybody have one of those? Those are great Bibles. The problem with those is going to be you're going to get a very big general interpretation, and there is some poetic license in that. So for a theologian, uh, someone who's doing inductive Bible study and breaking down words, you would tend to go to the left and get a, a stricter word for word. I'm saying all that to say is because God's word inspired is God's word. And that as he has communicated it and revealed it, it has now hit language after language throughout time. And it doesn't make it any less his truth. And we just wanted to make sure you understood that here. Now, I want to get you all to this point here for this, this passage. We here at Community Church believe God's word is inspired. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture. Paul's writing this. I'm sorry, yeah, Paul's writing this to Timothy. Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, a very heathen city, a very decadent and dark city, and he is, he is proclaiming and saying all of Scripture, not parts of it, but the whole of it, is God-breathed. Some of your interpretation will say is inspired. Same word, same concept. It is breathed out by God and is useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So in other words, God's word, first of all, helps us grow, right? Whether you're a teacher, whether you're the student, whether you did a bad thing, whatever it is, it's, it's good for us. Now, that's all done in what? Love. Often I find Christians today taking some of this and body slamming people with Bibles and telling them how bad they are. Friends, anything we're learning as God's taught us is to be done in love. No matter how dark and sinful people are, we are to call people away from sin and darkness. We are to do that. Scripture talks about if you find a brother that's in sin that calls themselves a Christ follower, we're to gently and in love call them back. So even the word rebuking, uh, we have to be cautious with, but it's to help us grow. Some of you in this room are wondering why you're not growing. I would ask you, what has your reading look like? What does the reading look like in your life in God's word? Verse 17 continues on. The second thing, it says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. It equips you. Not only does God's word teach you and begin to help train you in how to live rightly under God's standards. Now, we have to be careful here because we really can't perform for God to earn his love, right? We know that Jesus died so that we don't no longer have to play the earning game. But because of that great gift, we long and desire to live for him. And that is what it's saying, that training in righteousness. But then the second part is to do good works. To leave this place, to walk out of here and to go to games and to go to neighborhoods and to go to parties and to go to work and to go to to people's homes and to go to hospitals and to go where, into courtrooms and to do good works. 
God's word trains us and develops us and equips us to be able to do those things. If you're finding good works are lacking in your life, if you're waiting for the church website to show up of, hey, sign up to do this good work, you might not be reading because it empowers you to do that. It equips you to do this. So first is it's inspired by God. It helps grow us. It helps us to be empowered. Listen to some of these passages. Uh, or actually, look at this. The Bible itself self-proclaims its own sense of inspiration. Thus saith the Lord happens over about 413 times in Scripture. Meaning the Scriptures are saying, these different writers, God told me this. God told me to write this. And this is what He said. God said, occurs 46 times. God spoke through the prophets and people. 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. We were just talking, Trisha. Uh, and I have talked about this, but this is so true. And this is, you got to think about the diversity of the authorship, right? All these different authors, over 40 authors, authors that were inspired by God. Many prophets were given words that weren't really popular. You know, it was like, God told me to tell you, this city, this, that he's going to destroy you because you're evil and dark and immoral. That's not something you write and die for and say, God told me. Many lies have been told in our time, in our history, that people finally fess up before facing death. So we see this and see that prophets and people that spoke these things truly believed them. And to have that diversity over that span of time all come together to tell the one story is powerful. So this book is inspired. It's, it's proclaimed about its inspiration within itself. 2 Peter 1 says this in verse 20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. This is Peter writing, the Apostle Peter saying, No Scripture was written because some guy got an idea. I'm just going to write some things. I'm going to publish a book. Verse 21 says, For for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets... Though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, as we we read our Bibles, whether Old or New Testament, and can I just make a shout out to Old Testament? If you simply read the New Testament, you basically have said that I'm going to skip the first part of the movie and walk toward the end when the hero comes in. That's what you do. Because you have no understanding of why we needed a Savior. Friends, you read books like Leviticus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you realize, oh man, how bad we are, how bad we have it. You start to understand why there's a Savior needed. You read Genesis 15 and the covenant that God makes with Abraham and realizing that God made a promise to him and said, I will be torn to pieces for you breaking the covenant. I'll take your punishment. All the way in Genesis 15. And you see why Jesus had to die on a cross. Not only is it inspired, but truth is also a person. Truth is a person. In John 1.1 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. We see already that, that truth 
isn't necessarily these words. These words point to truth. And who is truth? We find all throughout Scripture is Father, Son, and Spirit are truth. Jesus is truth. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then Jesus answers in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. He says, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 5, 39 or 37 through 40. And the Father who sent me testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does the word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. He's talking to the Pharisees. Now let me stop for a moment. He's talking to the Pharisees who have memorized the scriptures. But there could be a problem sometimes when someone just memorizes facts, right, about God but doesn't allow the Holy Spirit to do the transforming work inside of a heart and a life. If it's, if it's reduced to just knowing facts about God, you find what's called kind of a hyper-religious fundamentalism and pointing fingers and almost knowledge base. It's all around intellect. Now, it's not to say that we're not to study the Scriptures, because we are. But for it to just rest in our minds, because Jesus says this to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to, to me and to have life. He's saying you've missed the point of the word. The word is the point to me, and I am the truth. This is Jesus the whole point of from Genesis to Revelation, friends, if you don't read the whole of the Scripture, you miss the whole story. How many of you would be referring people to books and say, just read the one chapter? Just read a couple chapters. The story from Genesis to Revelation, and especially when you understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and the fall and the need for God and the misery of being lost and broken and living under the law and how we could not perform underneath it, but the covenant he makes with Abraham all the way to Malachi, then all of a sudden this amazing moment that a king is born in Bethlehem. We're going to celebrate Christmas, that silent holy night where a king is born that will be sacrificed for you and I. That story continues on because he will resurrect again and launch this beautiful plan that God said now all can come to me, Gentile and Jew alike, and I'm going to call it the church. And the church is going to gather with this holy sense of power that's only through the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to change lives, and no longer are there buildings. The temple is people. I'm going to reside in people. And those people eventually are going to find themselves in tough places and situations, and eventually I'm going to come back and restore everything. The end of Revelation. This is the whole story of the Bible. When we take it like a science book or a textbook that we just take out parts, we miss this beautiful story. Last but not least, this book has amazing spiritual power. It is inspired by God. The truth points straight to Christ, but it has power. Hebrews 4, the writer says, For the word of God is alive and active. Have you picked up your Bible and found whether it's in a, in a service or in a group or alone in your own devotion and you read it and you just, and it hit, right? It hit right where you're living. 
it was like Jesus jumped out of the pages and, and, and knew your life and pulled that weed right out of your life. Or gave you direction. Or gave you hope. Or gave you encouragement. It's because the Word of God, His revelation to us about Himself is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. No wonder a country is in turmoil about truth. Because truth will divide. Truth will confuse. No wonder there's debate in circles and in halls today about separation of this and leave this out because it divides, it convicts. And there will be people from not just this that's happened in centuries before, but it will continue on that people will try to make their own Bibles and make their own absolute truths about what they think is truth. And we have one that is powerful and it's inspired by God. This is a great story at the, at the, the end of Jesus' journey here on earth and he's, he's died and resurrected in Luke chapter 24. It's famously called the road to Aramaeus. And Jesus is seen Uh, He's left the tomb, and so they have the disciples that show up there, and they're just perplexed. They can't find the body. And so their greatest fears come true, saying, oh my gosh, he's gone. Someone has stolen him, just so that they could just, you know, pour salt on the wound. It says in verse 24 of chapter 24 of, of Luke, that some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Well, Jesus is there. He shows up and says, and he says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Jesus is saying, man, you guys missed it. All these books that were written, the Torah, the prophets, are all talking about this. It's amazing how much we can get into this and miss and how it needs to be God's spiritual hand of teaching, his Holy Spirit, to to convict us, to change how we think and how we live and to reveal truth to us. It says, did not the Messiah, this is Jesus speaking, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then listen to this, verse 27, it's beautiful. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it doesn't say Jesus, but it is Jesus, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is explaining it. Man, when you read Genesis and you see this promise and when you see the Israelites going through this, do you see where I'm going to show up? And when you see the, the sacrifices of the burnt offering and it's, it's to fully sacrifice, gosh, do you realize that's me and I'm the one that's on the, the sacrifice? And when Elijah said this, he went on to explain to them. Verse 23, 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him to stay. He said, stay with us, for it's nearly nearly evening and the day is over. So he went and stayed with them. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened. They recognized him. It's almost as if Jesus had to go through like an Old Testament survey course. I'm going to just refresh you on what's going on. And all of a sudden, the aha moment. They had already broken bread with him. Doesn't in a mystery like 
the fog that was on them. They didn't recognize him. But it's so mysterious, it's so spiritual, it's so powerful. It says, and he disappears from their sight once they recognize him. Verse 32, then they look at each other and they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? These disciples realized when this book was opened, when, when then the creator began to explain, man, did you understand? This has application and this was a foretelling of me coming. And when it is explained, it had great power. And it says that their hearts burned within them. What's the highest authority in your life? Does your heart burn a longing, a sense of longing to go, I I long to get back in this book because it changes not only the way you think but the way you live. It equips you not only to do good works but it trains you on how to live. It can help you parent. It can help you deal with anger. It can help you struggle through an addiction. It can help you have the right words to say or hope for someone who's lost. It can help you work through sexual identity. It can help you in a marriage. It can help you nearly through every aspect of your entire being. Why don't we read it? The biggest elephant in the room, I think, in culture today is that there's no absolute authority. And people have proclaimed their own authority. Here, this morning, we're saying, this is our authority. This is our authority. Two challenges this morning before we go to the table. One, as you go to the blood and the body of Christ, the bread and the juice, Jesus said, do this often, and he said something, right? So that you remember me. We find ourselves much like the disciples, I think, sometimes. It doesn't take long for us, right? Every week to walk out of this room and forget how bad we really are, how bad we have it. And so first this morning, I'm going to ask you, as you take the bread and cup, Jesus himself affirms the scriptures as holy, as inspired. And if you believe in Jesus this morning and believe in the blood and body and the sacrifice made for you, he trusted this as authority. And maybe what you do is then take it and believe. You may not know it all. But this morning, I think in your heart of hearts, God's asking you to trust this as authority. Trust his revelation, his God-breathed revelation as authority. If it is, then the next thing is you need to read it. And friends, you need to get in groups, sign up for something, call somebody and say, let's start reading our Bibles and struggle through that. But open and ask God to begin to change your heart and put that burning within you because it will give you instructions on how to live. And this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something different. If you don't have a Bible, take one. Take one home. But I'm going to ask everybody to take your Bibles to, to communion. And I want you to hold it, and maybe you take that bread and cup, and together you thank God for the revelation that he's given you. Because God's not left you alone here. He's not left you to suffer and die and like struggle with no plans or no instruction. He's given you enough. Might you ask God to bring you back 
to being in this. Father in heaven, this morning as we go to the table, might we just be reminded of this great book, of your word, Lord, left for us to teach us, to train us. And God, would you call us to be in it, to search it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to apply it, to ponder it, to discuss it, Father, to pray it. God, will you call this church not only to be a church that prays, but a church that seeks the authority of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.